everyone, Brooke here, Rewildology's host. I have a bonus episode for you today as a special holiday treat. Do you remember Kayla Fratt from the Canine and Conservation miniseries? Well, she interviewed me for the Canine Conservationist podcast, and I have the audio to share with you all. Kayla and I discussed the power of conservation travel, as well as using unconventional communication methods to ignite change. I had so much fun recording this episode, and I hope you enjoy hearing me as today's guest. Here it is, friends. Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data. Today, I have the joy of talking to my dear friend, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, about tourism, communication, education, and how all of this relates to conservation. So welcome to the podcast, Brooke. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I'm super excited to have you here. Um, For our guests, or for our listeners, I suppose, Brooke is a conservation biologist, travel addict, and admirer of all things wild. Her globetrotting has taken her to the bushes of Africa, India's jungles, the Galapagos, polar bears, frozen tundra, and much more, um, which I have to say I'm really jealous about. That's quite the list. Um, So while visiting and studying the world's wildest places, Brooke realized that people everywhere are pretty spectacular and that we all want a better, healthier planet. So Brooke launched Rewildology podcast in January 2021 to share stories from the incredible people she's met throughout their years. I actually didn't realize your podcast was that young. That's amazing. 2021, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Um, So in addition to the podcast, Brooke is the director of conservation for the Wild Source, which is a conservation-based safari company in Golden, Colorado. She received a bachelor's degree in zoology from Ohio State University and a master's in conservation from Miami Miami University. Quite the pedigree and um, (laughs) definitely something to keep an eye on. I know if I ever get get myself together for a safari, I'm going through the Wild Source. Mm. Very excited about it. Um, And I'm really, really excited to get to this interview. But before we get to it, we're going to talk about our weekly suggestion, which is something we're now doing on the podcast. Um, And our suggestion this week is to to not sacrifice what you want most of all for what you want now. And I think this is something we're all kind of used to thinking about when we're thinking about what to eat in relation to how um, we think about our health. But this also relates to dog training. And I first heard it on the Bad Dog Agility podcast, which you probably haven't heard, but maybe some of our listeners have. And it stuck with me for a a long time. And I've touched on this concept when talking about working with Niffler as a teenage dog and thinking about making sure that as I'm going through our training or going through our day, I'm not pushing him so hard to get a job done in the short term that it actually impacts his long-term training or his long-term enthusiasm. So, um, Brooke, I don't know if you want to chime in there or we can just get to the actual interview. <laughs> You're the dog expert, girl. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, it, you know, again, it is also something to just keep in mind for our general day-to-day life. And, again, I think it, it goes beyond just thinking about, you know, whether you want to have your 10th cookie after dinner. Oh yeah. Uh. Yeah. Cause I mean, and I'm no, I know we'll get into my story here, but I mean, I'm getting ready to turn 30 this year. And I feel like the entire, this entire decade from the year I turned 20 to now, every single thing that I've done has been to get to where I am today. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see it until like two months ago. Yeah. So I, I completely vibe with that concept. So like sometimes you got to take the harder route mm-hmm. because that harder route is going to lead you to where you ultimately want to go. Exactly. No, that's a great way to think about it. You know, I know like something similar that I ran into. So I was, I was on unemployment at the beginning of this year 
and really stressed about money, really not sure what to do. And I got a job offer at a gas station. And it was one of those decision points where it was like, I really want money and stability right now, but is working at a gas station actually going to potentially take my time and energy and effort away from other areas that are more beneficial for my long-term goals? And luckily, I actually got a job offer at the Humane Society of Western Montana like that week. Because part of the, the tricky thing is if you turn down a job while you're on unemployment, you lose your unemployment, at Mm. least in the state of Montana, at least how I understood the rules. I might be wrong. Don't at me. (laughs) But that's how I understood it. Mm -hmm. So it was like, oh, crap. Like, I I don't want to work at a gas station that's going to take my time away from this podcast and this business and all my other long-term goals, but I also really need money. You know, yeah, it's, it's it's a lot. So it's a lot to think about. So, Brooke, let's get to you. That's the reason we're here. Um, Tell our listeners a little bit about kind of exactly what you do, because honestly, I don't think until I met you, I knew that your job existed. And I think if I did, it might, it might've impacted what I wanted to do with my life. Maybe, maybe not. Um, Yeah. Yeah. As I didn't know it existed either. I had, I was a wayfarer, I guess you can say early in my conservation career, just went to school, went to zoology. I was on track to be a veterinarian. I was going to be a zoological veterinarian. That's what I was going to do. And because that's the only thing that I've been exposed to Mm -hmm. on how to save wildlife. Like that's the Mm -hmm. only thing that I knew. And everything else was these beautiful wildlife documentaries that I would watch growing up. But that was so far from my reality Mm -hmm. that I was like, there's no way I can... I can do that. Yeah. So what can I do? I I see my local vet. I can do that. And I've been to the zoo. Exactly. I've been to the zoo. They -hmm. need veterinarians. Mm -hmm. Well, let me do that. And so from the, from the time I was like 10 years old, that's Mm -hmm. what I was on track to do. And um, oh my God, I was like so freaking intense about it. I bet. I was, (laughs) you know me, so I'm sure you can imagine the way I was, especially back then. And went to undergrad, studied zoology and pre-vet. And it wasn't until my senior year that I had what you can call, I guess you can call a come to Jesus moment. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to do that anymore. Yeah. Um, I even interviewed for vet school and everything. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to do this. Yeah. And so this is the best or worst time to realize that you don't want to become a veterinarian your senior year of December, your senior year of college. And so then after that, I was already working at the zoo at this time, the Columbus okay. Zoo and Aquarium, Ooh, which is amazing. A fabulous, zoo. Zoo. fabulous yeah. fantastic zoo. It's one of the best in North America. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was very spoiled at how amazing the zoo was, but With that being said, I didn't feel like I was doing enough. I wasn't fulfilled enough. And so then I found my master's program, which Mm -hmm. is where, um, but that you said in that beautiful Mm -hmm. intro, thank you, where I found the global field program at Miami University. And I was like, oh my God. I can get a master's program and you're going to send me around the world to travel. Right. And so I was like, sign me up. I mean, I didn't even hear about it until like a week before applications were due or something. It was insane. (laughs) And I just went off and applied for this grad program and I got in. Mm -hmm. And so 
then that was my first time around the world. And my very first trip was to Baja, California. I never eaten snorkel before. And I was like snorkeled with whale sharks, which oh was God. crazy. Yeah. And then, um, so my love is big cats. So like, that's mm -hmm. the whole, my whole intention of being here is conserving big cats. And the more I got into just the scientific literature and learning more and more, I mean, they're, they're so conflict ridden. We know that mm -hmm. they're one of the biggest conflict groups of animals. There are, they're a predator, yeah. they're an apex predator. Mm -hmm. Most people hate them for reasonable they're incredible reasons you know, <laughs> i think it's easy for like north american audiences to forget or not think about that because you know we think about human bear conflict or maybe human coyote conflict but we don't like mountain lions are not in most parts of the country prevalent enough where we have these like human cat conflicts but you know think about instead of having a bear having you know jaguars lions tigers that you're concerned about so and i know you've covered this a lot in your podcast so for people who are interested <laughs> find the rewildology wherever you're listening to this podcast <laughs> okay plug yeah. <laughs> this is why they pay me the big bucks <laughs> okay no, so that was so good so you were snorkeling in baja for your masters now what yeah and then after that i so I was really diving really deep into the literature and it's like, what can we do that can save big cats? Mm -hmm. And that is where I found sustainable or conservation travel. Mm -hmm. And that is when I was like, oh my good God, I need to do this. I have absolutely no idea how to even start in this field. I've been to like one international destination at that point. I was yeah. not even have been anywhere. I was like, but I need to do that. And so I focused a lot of my con my uh, master's work on building empathy for big cats, mostly through conservation travel. Okay. And that is where I met my mentor, who is now my employer um, as of two months ago, which is amazing. Wow. <laughs> yeah. um, I did a lot of uh, yeah big cat research through mm -hmm. his company. And, um, yeah, so that's how I got into it. And mm -hmm. then, I uh, there was this, uh, company out here called natural habitat adventures and here, I mean, Colorado, mm -hmm. and they were one of the top conservation travel companies. And it was towards the end of my master's. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but y'all are going to hire me. And <laughs> yeah, I don't care if I'm um, scrubbing the floors. I don't I'm just care. I'm coming. I mean, th and this is a good tip for anybody listening. Like I applied three times and it mm. was the finally, in the third application, there was another job opening that came up that the gal that interviewed me told me about. She's like, actually with your skill set, you might be a more fit for this job that we're getting ready to release. Like, why don't you apply for that one? And I'm like, done, send it to me. I will apply. Yeah. And that's how I got into the company. Gotcha. And so it was actually almost four applications. Right. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, and it was yeah. like, I'm not going to stop until you tell me that I'm never going to hire you. <laughs> yeah. And then they hired me and I was with them until COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm now, I guess you can say a conservation travel expert, I yeah. guess, specialist, yeah. whatever you want to uh -huh. say. So by using the power of tourism as a conservation tool. So yeah. that is, a, yeah, I'm, I'm, I am a conservation biologist. So I'm a scientist and then found a way to use that and guess, and also even though most, not all scientists are good with people, but I'm actually good with people. So then using the people skills and the science to come together and um, be expressed through travel. 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, my next question was supposed to be, how did you get here? But I think you covered that. I am kind of curious. Do you remember like when you were a little girl, when you were a little kid, like that moment when you were like, yeah, I want to be a zoological vet. Like what kind of sparked that? What brought that up for little, little Brooke? Little Brooke, little Brooke was obsessed with the discovery channel. Ah, (laughs) (laughs) say no more. (laughs) Literally. I just remember watching documentaries of these amazing places. Like I just still have these vivid images of watching tape of lion, lion prides in the Mm -hmm. Serengeti and just these areas that I had no, not even the closest hope that I would ever see in person, which now I have, but Um, again, if your dreams, if you pursue them, they will come true. It might take 30 years, but they will. (laughs) And, and yeah, so it was just watching documentaries for as many hours as my sisters would let me Mm -hmm. and hours of like Zubumafu. I don't know if you remember that show. How could I not? (laughs) Zubumafu and the Crap Brothers. And the Crap Brothers. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know where this love of nature and wildlife came from. I mean, I grew up in Southern Ohio and in the woods and I would just Mm -hmm. run like a wild child in my woods and, Mm -hmm. and watch these nature based shows as much as possible. And and then I don't know. And then just from there, the love grew. And I was like, I have, yeah. I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do this. Yeah. I mean, so there's like two interesting things in what you brought up with your story. One being like just the power of media and communications and inspiring the next generation of conservationists, which is one of the things we're going to talk about today. I'm also on Friday. So we're recording on a Wednesday. On Friday, I'm recording an episode where that's our whole topic is inspiring mm. the next generation of conservationists through media and like talking about how important this is. So it's just really cool. I mean, both of us. Yeah. We like, Oh my God, Zabumafu and the crap brothers. Mm -hmm. And you know, we might be showing our particular age, but I think a lot of people who are listening who care about conservation probably have their own touchstones. And then the other thing that I find as a really interesting parallel for both of us is thinking about the fact that both of us are doing dream jobs. We both love the work that we do. And I don't think either one of us knew that our jobs existed until we were what? Like, I was probably 22 before I heard about conservation detection dogs. Maybe 21. Um, I was not that young. (laughs) I was still going to be a vet at that time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I heard about it, and then I got some very discouraging responses when I first reached out to people asking, like, how do I get into this job? They were like, you don't. (laughs) I was like, oh, that's not going to work, but okay. Um, It's like, oh, you're cute, you know? Yeah, yeah, and, you know, this, like, there's something really, I think, important for people who listen, because I... I don't know about you, but I feel like at least once a week I'm on the phone with someone who's like, how do I, how do I follow your path? How do I have your job? And you know, the first answer is like, you can't follow my path. You're not going to, your path is your path. Um, how do you get where I am? You know, I think both of us were really highlighting. It's a lot of persistence and a lot of, you know, even though we're both really young and we're both really happy with where we're at, we both have had pretty winding paths Mm -hmm. to get where we're going and plenty of barriers. So, okay, so your current job with the Wild Source, Director of Conservation, what does that mean you kind of do on like a daily or weekly basis? I'm sure it varies a bunch, but what are kind of, tell us about the sexy parts of your job and then tell us about the not sexy parts of your job. (laughs) Right. Well, I guess right now technically could be the not sexy part. So when I was at Natural Habitat, I helped 
pretty much restructure the company to um, create new systems, mm-hmm. and, you know, just like the non-sexy stuff. And I'm essentially doing that right now for the, the wild source, but that's great because once gotcha. our foundation is super strong, then we can move into what I really want to do. And that is creating a travel, con- like a conservation travel series Okay, where I'm going to be putting together destinations and trips where people can come on and have one of the most spectacular conservation experiences of their life in a sustainable way and meet some unbelievable people. And yeah. so that is what I'm going to be oh God, moving into. <laughs> I'm going to be doing that. I already have a list of potential destinations that mm-hmm. we're going to be looking into, which is some contacts that I have around the world. Bill is very connected with, cause he's also a wildlife biologist too. So gotcha. we're both scientists by trade that were like, Oh my God, we love travel. We also love supporting these international destinations and international wildlife. And we both ended up coming on the same solution as conservation travel. And so building that, um, my big cat brought, my big cat research project that I mentioned a little bit during my master's was through his company. I'm going to revamp it. Okay. So going to take it to another level, which I'm very excited for that. Oh, what else am I going to do? Um, they have a actual foundation too. So I'll be running like a nonprofit cool. through them. I mean, we're going to see, you know, sure. <laughs> you know, all these things. I mean, that let we're us be know doing. when you need some scat found. Right. Uh, I know a couple dogs who are really good at sniffing out cat poop. <laughs> and we might. I mean, we might. Yeah. yeah we'll chat. I, I got some destinations where that actually might be a really good thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. And we've kind of, again, my next question was going to be what inspired you. We've already covered that. So let's kind of like, let's rewind a little bit. How does travel benefit conservation? Because travel, you know, I think a lot of us know like airfare has a big carbon footprint. And I think there's also a really interesting nuance that I want to dig into a little bit here. So whenever we go somewhere to see an intact ecosystem, to some degree, we're helping putting, put dollars on an intact ecosystem. And that is, I think for anyone who's listening to this podcast, they would agree a fundamentally good thing, but there's also a difference between like responsible and less responsible ecotourism. Like I know I have personally witnessed, um, dolphin watches in Panama Mm. where the boats are straight up chasing the dolphins around. And like, yes, it's good that these people are spending their money on seeing the dolphins instead of like, I don't know, like a highway or something, (laughs) but it's not actually good for the dolphins. So, you know, I know that's a bunch of different questions in one, but like, how does travel benefit conservation? And then how are we, especially as consumers who are potentially looking at booking a trip that's eight months out on a different continent, we've never been, we can't tell, you know, how do we think responsibly about it um, on so many different levels? So just Go. I know that was like, that was like, <laughs> just, a word vomit. Bro, Go just start word vomiting. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I completely understand exactly where you're coming from because mm-hmm. this is a really, really big issue across yeah. the board, across tourism. But the main reason why when tourism is done right, why it is so important is it puts an exact value dollar on a live and thriving wildlife. Mm-hmm. And when your favorite species have we as humans. Okay. We're top predators. When your favorite species are also top predators, it is literally in our genes to kill anything that is a threat to us. Mm -hmm. And so if 
and also I've been around the world and I've seen a lot of bad stuff. Like living with this, this wildlife is not easy. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to go into grotesque examples, but something as simple as somebody who like, you know, in Africa, one form of currency in some cultures is cattle. And let's say that for some reason, a lion pride came in and took out half their cattle. Yeah. They might not know how they're going to feed their family the next right. day. Yeah. It's, it's literal like life and death for these Literally. People. Yeah. Literally. Don't know how they're going to send their kids to school. But let's say that, that that same line is protected because, or there's a value dollar on it because tourists come to see that lion alive and thriving and they are getting direct revenue from those people coming yeah. there. So like, let's say they're part of a village. Maybe the, the father of the family is a guide. Maybe, yeah. uh, maybe the grandfather is too. Maybe, um, someone else in the family owns a lodge that the people stay at. Yeah. Someone else is employed as a cook. For exactly. The lodge, exactly. Yeah. Um, there's definitely a lot of gender issues around the world. So there are some different gender things that people might be employed as, but it is one of the biggest employers across the world is the uh, travel industry. Yeah. So, and I think it's like one in 10. I mean, I don't remember the style. I'll have to look it up, but it is a significant number of people are directly and indirectly, um, like supported through tourism. Uh huh. So that is why it's so important is because there are very few things in conservation or, or really anywhere that places money on wildlife, places money on nature and intact ecosystems. Exactly. It just doesn't exist. Yeah. And so, and as much as we wish the, the world ran on goodness and unicorns and rainbows, it doesn't. It, it runs doesn't. on money. Yeah, we are and, in a capitalist society, so. Well, I mean, it's just capitalist in general. I yeah. mean, it's not just our society. It's it's yeah. across the world. We're it's, in a capitalist globe. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, money runs the world. Everybody wants a better life for them and their family. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter your color of skin. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your gender. Everybody wants a better life for them and their family. And everybody has right to that. So how do we create something where people can have a sustainable livelihood that doesn't destroy ecosystems. Mm-hmm. That is the million dollar question of 2021. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> and we are still, we are still dealing with this. And, and so that is why I believe so much in like the sustainable conservation travel model. Yeah. Cause when it's done right, as you alluded to, it's not always done right. Yeah, it's actually course. quite often not when it's done right. It can be, an amazing, an amazing mm-hmm. employing resource for thousands and th- millions of people across billions, yeah. probably. I mean, whatever the stat is yeah, across the it's world. Probably close, especially again if we're kind of getting generous with our adjacent sort of people. Because technically, mm-hmm. the person who helped move your bags mm-hmm. when you're connecting in Dubai on your yep. way to Morocco. Mm-hmm. that person is, you know, some amount of their paycheck is thanks to conservation tourism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a little indirect, but okay. So, you know, I know when I'm on the ground, when I was in Panama, I was able to maybe shop around a little bit and talk to people and kind of figure out, you know, cause I did want a place that employed local guides. Mm-hmm. I didn't want it to just be college kids on summer break 
doing some kind of like colonialist volunteerism <laughs> sort of thing. Which that's a thing too. A super big thing. Uh, okay. See your episode with Kayla. Yes. Uh, the other Kayla, not me. Um, <laughs> great episode on kind of like colonialism and issues in conservation tourism in particular. Um, but kind of from afar, you know, so obviously, you know, all of our guests should just book things or all of our listeners should just book things with the wild source, but say, you know, they're looking at a destination that wild source doesn't currently cover or whatever. Like what are some of the things that you can do to look for a reputable company, both as far as like how they interact with the wildlife and also how they interact with the local community? Because again, like we don't want to just be in a situation where we're like perfect a plus gold star on wildlife interactions, but we're, you know, colonialist shitheads to the local community. Right, right. And there's and there's several things. And again, this just comes down to being a smart consumer. Mm-hmm. It really does. Um, go to the website and start looking around. So, for example, can you tell if the business is locally owned or not? Mm-hmm. And not and that doesn't always mean if they're not locally owned if they're bad. But if you right. know that if they are locally owned, then one hundred percent that your tourism dollars are going to be in, injected into, into the, local the local community, community. Yeah. because it is owned by somebody who lives there. That is their home. So that's number one. Again, not always. I mean, there's some very well-run organizations where the, a lot of the money does go to the local community, but but let's, we're just talking general. We're talking yeah. general. Yeah, you know, broad strokes. Broad, yeah. yeah. So that that's great. Mm-hmm. Next is start doing some research on, like just like reading and looking, maybe even looking on Google images or just like searching for them and their type of wildlife interactions. Mm-hmm. What are they doing? Do you see people touching animals? Most 95% of the time, if you see people touching wildlife, it is a massive red flag. Absolutely. There are definitely some exceptions to this, which are very few, few and far between, which we could definitely talk about, but for the most part, and good God, if there is cub petting of any sort, mm-hmm. please run away. I don't care what you have to do. Put a one-star review. Don't even go there. Like, literally, if there is cub petting, mm-hmm. just for the sake of my big kitties, please don't go. Yeah, so that's where <laughs> you're actually, like, handling these cubs. And I know there's right. at least one place in Colorado here that does that. Um, that is... Right. We don't have to name names. We don't have to throw <laughs> yeah. shade. But it's it's a big thing. It's a big moneymaker. And it is not ethical. In any way, shape, or form. Yeah. And it, for, for big cats to be bred for any other reason than a very strict conservation yeah. protocol, there is no reason for it. Yeah. None. Yeah. None. If they're not being released to the wild, and that requires a ton of preparation to make sure that they're equipped to be released to the wild because Mm -hmm. it takes, you know, you can't just breed an animal in captivity and chuck it out into the wild. And you also, I know there's a lot of difficulty as far as making sure that the genetics are sound Mm -hmm. and you're getting, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff. We could do a whole other episode on this if people want. Um, Now they're one of us. That's not like our area of expertise. Um, So I do have kind of another question. So I think, I feel like there's like ecotourism, which is Mm -hmm. kind of going out and seeing the ecology, seeing the biology. My favorite travel experience I've ever had was my parents hired a private guide who was a, an entomologist on Honduras. And we did. Oh my God. It was, oh my God. It was the coolest. We went on a night hike with her and we just spotlighted for like cane toads and trapdoor spiders and like just saw the craziest night bugs. And it was the coolest. It was the absolute coolest. And this was a way that this entomologist paid for 
her work, right? You know, she like did her surveys. She had her ecology, you know, she had her entomology work and she had her grants and whatever, but she supplemented a lot of that with guiding. So there's a difference between just going out and watching dolphins and potentially actually directly supporting these scientists. Is that kind of the difference between eco and conservation tourism or is there a different line that you would draw? Um, so I would say it's, it's, it's interesting because ecotourism came out as this term to be like more like eco-conscious travel. Mm-hmm. And to me, and this is my personal opinion, I sure. mean, so people might Google it and come up with something completely different. But to me, ecotourism has almost come this like general like broad term, like ecotourism appears, like, let's say you have a diagram. So like ecotourism mm-hmm. at the very top and then you have branches that come down. Sure. And so like, there's like this social tourism thing that comes on the bottom of that. And then like the one that I'm particularly interested in is more conservation travel, which is almost like a branch of ecotourism sure. okay. and conservation travel to me at least is much more focused on conservation versus just having an experience in nature. So like, for example, technically if you go on like to Costa Rica, which I'm going to be doing here soon, um, most people would say that they're going on an ecotourism trip because they are going to these like eco lodges. They might participate in maybe a night walk or two, which is cool. But for the most part, they just want to be in a really cool jungle, take some pictures, do some, Mm -hmm. you know, like what's that? Uh, the like canopy bridges and some sure. skyline, you know, just, just zip lining, zip whatever. lining around. Yeah. yeah. And so I would come and but, but of course, but that's also really important too, because like those types of tourism keeps the jungle intact and stuff. Sure. So that's great. I would include that more as ecotourism. Yeah. Now the trip that I'm going to be doing, because it is me traveling, <laughs> I'm going to be doing a much more in-depth, small-scale travel where yeah. I am going to be meeting with a whole bunch of people there that are doing the real work. So going to see these conservation projects, just like you said, like where mm-hmm. you with the gal in Honduras, exact same thing, going to different conservation groups, seeing how I can support them. I, in my personal example, I'm going to be inter- interviewing them for the podcast, cool. which is a whole nother way to share their story, but on a deeper level. So a much smaller impact, much smaller footprint, much for the purpose of seeing wildlife and supporting the people that I can, that are there that are also doing conservation and wildlife research as well. So it's, so it's just, it's just more of a, more for the actual part of being there for conservation. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so smaller footprints, I think that's a really big thing to think of too. Um, when, when, if you want to go more the conservation route is how big are this groups? So if you're also looking up as well, is it a super, super small group where you're going to go out and see those dolphins where it's just like one, maybe two boats, or is it going to be a horde and right. are you going to be around them? So that is another really big thing to think of as well. Yeah. So mm-hmm. much, much smaller footprint, much traveling for the sake of wildlife mm-hmm. versus, just a vacation that happens to be in the jungle. Yeah. Okay. I think that makes sense. Well, and I think one of the other things I think I've seen, and again, most of my travel experience has been in Latin America. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, I know one of the other things that you'll see a lot in eco lodges is kind of like eco lodges, ecotourism that kind of focuses on like regenerative agriculture Mm -hmm. or um, I know, I can't remember the word for it, but you know, these like coffee plantations that also have, 
intact ecosystems kind of around mm-hmm. and integrated within them. So it's not just clear cut and coffee. Right. Um, and yeah, there's all sorts of cool things within that. It might be supporting the community, but it's not necessarily directly related to conservation science. It could be, but what I've described doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, so, and I know some of the other, like people, at least that you've interviewed on your podcast, and I don't know if WildSource does this or not, but in some of these tourism cases, the tourists, your guests, your visitors, um, I don't know what they're called necessarily. In all the, of them, whatever you want, it. travelers, all, all the terms. Um, <laughs> yeah. They, um, you know, they may actually be engaged in community science, which just like blows my mind. So it's not just that you're actually taking your money and helping support, you know, this entomologist who's trying to do really important work in Honduras, but you're also potentially, as you're going out and taking pictures, you're also inputting behavioral data, point counts, whatever it is. So can you talk about what that may look like for people who are interested in community science? I don't know if the Wild Source offers that yet. Um, but <laughs> that was my master's project. Yeah. So tell me about that. Yeah. What does that look like? Yeah. So what's really cool about a lot of these areas and what I wanted to focus on so much was these places that these guides are and these camps are, are also the grounds to be a long-term wildlife study. So when, so that was the basis of this project that I set up is I built an app, um, a very rudimentary app. I'm not, uh, it was a software that I found online. Yeah. So I built an app and it was, um, it was a behavior recording app. And so these guides are there all year round. They know these cats like the back of their hands. They know them by name. And so every single time they interact with them um, or they they have their out of sighting and observation, they record the data and what's going on. And then the guests are welcome and inclined to also join in this Mm -hmm. to see the wildlife as a scientist. And when you turn the lens from just being a passive observer to being an active watcher, an active scientist, the connection you make with wildlife is next level. When you see who that individual is, what are they doing? Are they hunting? Is that their cub? Oh my gosh, that's that's this cub that must have just left their mother because it's in the same territory. And these stories come Mm -hmm. around. And then as you're recording all of this data, year after year after year, you are tracking these individuals. You are seeing how the population changes around time. And it's a very powerful tool. Also, what's huge about and why this is so important, especially for researchers to partner with tourists and tourist companies, is there are so many more eyes out there than what any researcher could possibly imagine. Absolutely. So yeah. if you have a trained guide, especially that you are with out in whatever, this is really big in Africa, um, out in the wild, then they can find and record these sightings that these researchers wouldn't, wouldn't even have, right. couldn't even think about doing because there's just so many more eyes, so many more people out there, yeah. so many so, more safari vehicles or different vehicles. Yeah. And so, so much research then is captured through this community science, citizen science yeah. umbrella. Well, and I'm even just thinking, so like one of the most formative experiences in my undergraduate experience was I studied abroad with the Boston University Tropical Ecology Program, which unfortunately I believe no longer exists. Oh. I know. <laughs> I think they lost funding last year. Um, oh, well. Hopefully I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Um, and we spent 
so we were in based in Quito and we spent like a couple weeks in the Galapagos, a couple of weeks outside of Manta on the, the Ecuadorian coast tide pulling. And then we spent some time up at the Andes. And then we spent a month at the Tiputini biodiversity station down in Yasuni, which is like the most biodiverse place on the face of the planet. Or, you know, it's like up there. There's a bunch of places that kind of share that title. It really depends <laughs> yeah. on like how you count it and whether you're talking like reptiles or birds or whatever. But anyway, it's like, it's up there. It's an incredible, incredible place. And when we were there, um, they had each, each student was supposed to be creating these individual studies. So like one of the studies that I did while I was there was I was looking at tarantula defense behavior. That's so cool. It was so fun. I was like <laughs> catching tarantulas and then like lightly ticking them off to see like, <laughs> do the bigger tarantulas respond more or less aggressively to having puffs of air blown at them? Um, <laughs> it was so fun. Uh, turns out the smaller tarantulas are feistier. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, I did a, I did a project where I was looking at, um, bird point count data over the course of the day. So I'd go up at different times. Um, I had another re a project where I was doing, um, the pH in Heliconia bracts. So the Heliconias are, um, they're kind of, they're like that stereotypical weird red flower that you see in like hotel lobbies mm, where it's kind oh of like yeah. that flat bract. And then they've got the, they're almost like sideways teardrops of these like red bracts that go up and they hold water. And so what we were looking at is um, the pH of the water and how that affects the invertebrate communities that are raised in that standing water or grow up in that standing water. Anyway, so the reason I bring all that up is because I feel like one of the things that they could have done with this project mm -hmm. and, you know, potentially they're trying to train young scientists. They wanted us to think through coming up with hypotheses and designing studies but what may actually have been more beneficial, or maybe if they had added this in, would be what if you had this army of students that goes out and spends a month at this incredibly remote field station? What if every year when you sent that group of students out, they were actually working on a couple long-term projects? Because mm -hmm. there was 24 of us or 16 or 18 of us. There was a group, of, a big group of us. And again, even if we also had to design some of our own studies, but it's just like, wow, like what are, what are some of the data we could have collected if we just had every single one of us going out and recording, you know, whatever that study was, whether it was on sake monkeys or teras or, you know, who knows, even just like insect communities on a given tree. Yeah. I actually did that in Namibia for my, uh -huh. well, during my master's program. Okay. So, uh, second year. So actually, yeah, if someone is running, it works really well because yeah. you have this force of labor that are coming yeah. to you that you know are already trained that you can train that are scientists and they're like 20 years old so they're crazy enthusiastic exactly they want to be there so we did um a game count for uh -huh. cheetahs it was at the cheetah conservation uh -huh. fund in namibia um outside of ojibarongo and we got up at 4 a.m and they dropped us at the bush and the <laughs> bush at these and every single one of us had a different water hole and we just did a presence absence of every single species and the, and the number of species oh that came God, yeah. to the watering hole mm -hmm. um <laughs> you can only imagine the stories at the end of the day that all of us had yeah so all of us i mean there was no radios no walkie talkies no nothing we were dropped off in the bush at these watchtowers oh at sunrise and we were picked up at sunset yeah and and but it was great because yeah. for them they had all of this labor they had all yeah. this labor where all of the watchtowers could be watched we all of us could be doing a presence absence studies we could all be counting and all the game cool experience for you for your oh my career gosh. like it's such a win-win win-win-win mm -hmm. oh, i have so you know? many stories from that that yeah. one day that one day it was it, it made a massive impact on me you know yeah, I, saw so brown, what is it? I saw a brown hyena okay which are 
insanely rare. This is uh-huh. at sunrise. Yeah, every, so not just, a spotted hyena. No, 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 no. These are solitary, right? Um, So Cry of the Kalahari, which is a very great book. It's all based on um, talking about learning the super elusive brown hyena. They're nocturnal. They are, they were formerly thought to be solitary, but they do have clans, but they don't work the same way that like, you know, your normal spotted hyenas work. Yeah. Cause they're pretty social. uh, Yeah. Yeah. But in like massive, 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 massive territories. And so to see one, I guess that we were like the first group ever to have seen oh a brown gosh. hyena. Um, yeah. A- amazing. Um, there was some other sightings of some other wildlife that other groups saw had that was really cool. Someone had a leopard. Um, wow. so some other ones, um, some other species that can't quite talk about, um, just because, you know, gotta keep some things safe and on the down low, totally. but there was some really cool sightings and all of us came together. We're like, guess what we saw? Guess what yeah. you saw? And so that, it, and it worked really, really well. Cause again, they had trained students that mm-hmm. were able to go out and correctly identify right. the wildlife that was at this watering hole. I had baboons apparently. Oh my God. Baboons. Okay. I would much rather face pretty much almost not anything, but close to anything than baboons a, a troop of baboons. terrifying. Dude. Okay. <laughs> so apparently we were in their favorite bathroom. There was so much baboon <laughs> poop in this watchtower and the troop came back and they realized that we were in there and Oh my God. It was like 10, 15 minutes of us like trying to find it. Cause they were like, they came from the other side of the watering hole. And then they like started to circle around both this trap. This troop was huge. And it started to circle all the way around the watering hole. And they were climbing up in the trees and barking into like looking directly at us and barking as they were coming around. I'm like, Oh my good God. And it was me and one other gal in there. And I'm like, do we have projectiles? Like, are we going to have to defend yeah. ourselves? Again, there's no walkie-talkies. There's yeah. no radios. There's this troop of baboons coming, descending upon us. And they have thumbs. Oh, my like, God. Exactly. <laughs> they are so violent. And yeah. The, the like, canines. Like, uh, yeah. Dude, humans, our dentition is weak <laughs> sauce compared to, like, a lot of the other apes out there. Exactly. Exactly. So... Luckily, right when they almost got to the bottom of our watchtower, they decided that, decided that we were no longer worth it and, like, scurried off. But it was a very tense, yeah. like, 10, 15 minutes of my life. Yeah. It was, it was, luckily, nothing happened. Yeah. But, again, it was so cool. Saw some amazing wildlife. And just being in the bush from sunrise mm-hmm. to sunset was... Yeah. It was really cool. Yeah, that's really bringing back a lot of memories. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, we had a similar experience with like uh, a herd of peccaries. Oh my um, gosh! Yeah, it was like forty peccaries, and like individually, none of them are like that big or that <laughs> scary. But like, you got forty, fifty, and I remember our guides kind of telling us because we had guides that kind of like took care of us for the first couple of days we were in Tibutini, and they were like, "Yeah, if you like see a bunch of peccaries, just climb a tree." <laughs> And I was like, okay, great. But then like we see these peccaries and we're looking around. And so you're in the rainforest. And for our listeners who maybe haven't been to the rainforest yet, it's tall and it's thick. And most trees do not have branches. Yeah, how do you do how do you climb up a tree? I don't know. I don't know. That was our big question. Because they don't have branches. Because why would they put out branches down low? They put up the branches up high where there's actually sunlight. So you're just looking at all these like naked tree trunks. And like, again, luckily we just like, we kind of stayed where we were and the peccaries moved through and it was, it was a nothing burger, but it was totally this, this, uh, this situation of being like, 
I don't know how to climb a tree that ostensibly <laughs> looks like a telephone pole. You have to like move on it. Remember when she was like, that yeah. Thing? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, the I, feel like, I feel like I need some practice with that <laughs> before I'm trying to do it live with a bunch of peccaries. Well, and then, I mean, and this is something I think about a lot. This and, and we're going on a little bit of a tangent here. We'll bring it back home in a minute. But like when I'm thinking about like safety for my dogs in the field, you know, that's a whole other level because it's like I can climb a tree. In theory, you know, like if I was really scared for my life, I oh, probably, you would have found a way. I probably could have gotten got gotten up that tree. <laughs> yeah, I probably could have. Um, Lots I of hope. scrapes and bruises, but you would have made it. <laughs> I really hope so. <laughs> if I'm gonna get killed by a wild animal, I'd rather have it not be peccary. Right. <laughs> um, but I can't get my dogs up a tree. Even no. if I had, because I do carry when I'm in the field, I carry a pack a paw rescue harness, which is this little. It's like smaller than a Nalgene. And it kind of, it's, uh, it's got holes in it. So I can kind of put it under my dogs as like a, a belly sling mm. and then it's got holes for their legs. And then I can actually turn it into a backpack. So the oh theory gosh, is wow. if I was six miles into the backcountry and my dog broke its leg, I can carry them out relatively comfortably. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, in theory, even if I have that with me, I'm not climbing a tree with a dog <laughs> on my back. I mean, the time that it would take to put that on, to get up a tree, I mean. The change in like, I mean, hauling barley's 45 pounds, you know, center of gravity, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, it's just like a whole other thing that we think about. So let's take a quick ad break. And when we come back, we're going to switch gears a little bit from tourism to conservation um, communications. And, you know, the thing that both Brooke and I are, are doing here. So we are back. Um, Brooke, before we switch gears over to kind of conservation communications, did you have anything more you wanted to talk about on kind of that travel front? Anything else we didn't get to or you want to mention a little bit more thoroughly? I think the biggest thing is do your research. Mm -hmm. Do your research, plan ahead, find a company that has the same values as you, mm -hmm. and then ask questions. Yeah. Ask questions. If there is any sort of wildlife interactions, just make sure you do your due diligence to yeah. do research to make sure that is sustainable, it is ethical, mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And if you get to an experience and you don't agree with it, you don't have to continue on to. I think yeah. that's another thing to keep in mind as well. If you are uncomfortable in a situation, it is your vacation. You do not have to continue on. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's my that's my big advice for anybody. Yeah, that's great. And it, so I guess I do also have a question here um, as far as like, are there any countries where there are relatively solid regulations on any of these things? Like I feel relatively sure that if I were to hire a wolf watching guide in Yellowstone, I would be getting something pretty ethical because mm -hmm. it's so strictly regulated, you know, again, especially between the U S and national parks, you can probably do that with a little bit less research versus if you're going maybe somewhere that's a little bit less regulated, it's a newer industry. Um, so aside from potentially like U.S. national parks, are there any other places where you can potentially think of where it's like, yeah, you're probably more or less good with anyone who's got permits to do it? I mean, the Galapagos, that mm. is the most regulated place I've ever been. Same. Ever. So yeah. hardcore Galapagos, anyone you hire, I mean, They're people will immediately and, yeah. lose their livelihood immediately if anybody sees them and their tourists doing something bad. So that that's number one. I think they have they have figured out. And then um, Africa. I yeah. mean, I've been um, all around southern and eastern Africa. I have not been to any of the northern parts, so I can't I can't vouch for that area. But Africa, I mean, man, they if you want to get some good conservation travel. 
um, just go to the Serengeti, like go to these national parks, yeah. go to these different areas too, which I know is, might be a little bit out of reach financially, but there, there are ways definitely to go, to go to these areas. Yeah. So I think, um, those, uh, I would just be very wary about Asia, mm-hmm. anything in Asia, Mm-hmm. definitely do your research. I had this really fantastic episode recently um, um, where I had this gentleman on, his name is Michael Volger, and he is trying to completely change the elephant tourism yeah, industry. Yeah, he's the Mandalao guy, Yeah, right? yeah. in Mandalao, and it's in Laos. So that's a really great example of somebody is thinking about traveling to Asia to hear what sustainable, ethical mm-hmm. elephant tourism is. Mm-hmm. in that area. So I definitely recommend that again, avoid anything that's with a dangerous animal. If it is with a big cat, if it is an adult big cat, that means that they are sedated and you should not run Don't away. Give them your money. Oh yeah. my God, please run away with a 10 foot pole. If there's cubs involved, please run away. Um, you yeah. know, if you, if you really want the animal interaction, come to a conservation detection dog demo. Yes. I have domestic dogs that will happily lick your face. You (laughs) can get the animal interaction and the conservation if you go with the domestic animals. Exactly. And, you know, and I'm sure there are, you know, I know we both um, talked to and potentially worked with people who do some ethical animal interactions through wildlife rehab. So Mm -hmm. I know I have one of the favorite photos I ever have taken of myself is of me holding a kestrel on a glove at a wild bird show in Ecuador as well. I'm talking about Ecuador a lot today. Um, And that bird, I believe, had been hit by a car and then was part of, like, a conservation outreach education program. So I did get that interaction with that animal, but it was through really specific reasoning. It wasn't just, like, a wild bird that had been taken from its nest in order to make money, in order to, you know, get the pics. It was a bird that was part of a professional rehabber's program. Right. And yes, that did help bring in money for them. Money is not necessarily evil in this context, but no, not at all. Um, you know, it was a really specific setup. So exactly. I, I can see how like, yeah, like specific outreach animals, especially if they've been rehabbed and are unreleasable for some oh, reason, yeah. like oh, that yeah, would probably totally. be the biggest exception to like, if you've got animal interactions, but your point about like, if you're looking at big cats, mm-hmm. like, I, I, I've never seen a big cat interaction that I feel good about. I know, like, the San Diego do, Zoo does some interesting outreach with some of their cheetah. Yeah, um, che- cheetah and... And they're kind of medium kitties anyway. Right, right. <laughs> and and I always... I'm so back and forth on this. And I, I will personally say this is why I left the zoo world. And this has absolutely nothing to do with zoos. I love zoos. I'm a big supporter. I spent many years of my career mm-hmm. in the zoo world. It's just since I worked so much with people, I would hear what they would say. And they, so many times I would hear, oh, mommy, mommy, I want a cheetah. Look at her. <laughs> She's with a cheetah. I want one. And it doesn't matter what that zookeeper said, whatever came out of their mouth, that is what they want to hear. And that is what they, that's all they want. Like I want a cheetah. And so I was like, well, and also me, I mean, I have a massive tattoo of a cheetah. Like I'm like, (laughs) I love them. They are very, I mean, their numbers are declining. They are not doing well in Mm -hmm. the wild. And so just to hear, and oh, and they are insanely trafficked. They Mm -hmm. are one of the most trafficked cats 
because they are not as deadly. And so they are... Mm -hmm. I would much rather hunt a cheetah than hunt a lion. Exactly. This is because they are so well adapted. They are so... They are like the most adapted cat, essentially, with all their different adaptations they have throughout their body. But one of the things that they did to have their insane um, oxygen flow as they're running, they had to have a smaller head. Mm -hmm. And so their bite isn't near as strong as any of the other cats. Yeah. And so because of that, you know, and obviously bite is the most dangerous thing of a big cat. And so, yeah. Yeah, they don't have that. That is why. Yeah. And and they're not, so they're not near as deadly. I mean, you see so many videos, people, and they're like purring and they're cute. And again, I don't want this to sound bad, but as I know, we're going to soon be getting to of this conservation communication side. What is that image saying to people? How are they interpreting you as someone who is very much entrenched in conservation? How, how is someone receiving that image? Yeah. And I no longer wanted to be a part of that. Yeah. And so that is why, that's one of the main reasons why I shifted my career. And again, I hope nobody gets offended by that. This is like my personal journey that I went down and I decided that I wanted to have a different image. And that's me in a safari vehicle Mm -hmm. in the middle of Namibia in Atosha national park or the Serengeti. And I'm seeing a wild cheetah devouring an Impala. Like that is what I decided I want to be as my message. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I know even as a conservation science professional or whatever, I was at the Omaha Henry Dorley zoo about a month ago, which is also very fantastic zoo. zoo. Excellent. zoo. Fantastic zoo. I saw the spring hairs. I want a spring hair. (laughs) (laughs) They are the coolest, cutest thing. I'm not going to get one. I don't even know if it's legal. I haven't even bothered Googling. I live in a van with dogs. I'm not getting a spring hair, but it is, it is so funny how like, even when you know better, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's still totally this like, oh my God, that is the cutest thing I've ever seen. I want it in my bed. Exactly. And, and I, I mean, and I, I struggle with this as well. I mean, I'm obsessed with big cats. You can't even imagine what it does to me when I see a cub, like a, like a big, like a lion cub and it's cute little rosettes. And it's just like, around i just like yeah, i, love I die <laughs> i love the, the the teenage cheetahs with their like weird little oh mohawks <laughs> i mean you've met niffler and many of our mm-hmm. listeners have probably seen pictures of niffler on the on the internet and i think like when he gets really excited because he's at this like funny teenage stage where his legs are really long and his chest has dropped but he's not thickened out yet and he's got these spots and when he gets really excited he gets this like uh his hackles go up when he's playing and he totally just looks like the dog version of like a teenage cheetah anyway um gosh we were having too much fun um so anything more on conservation tourism before we change no i feel uh, like i probably i mean well this is one of those topics that we would have to get another drink and we'll just have to keep chatting on that long but your listeners probably don't want that so we can we can move on to whatever yeah. you want. Yeah. So let's well, let's switch gears then and talk about communication. So you're an amazing storyteller. You have dedicated so much of your time to helping educate people on these issues. I know we've already kind of hinted at this, but why does that matter? Why does this communication and education matter? Connection. Mm-hmm. That is the number one piece. And at first, I really didn't quite understand or see that because I was like, I need to be a scientist. 
I need to be a scientist, but you can do all of the incredible science in the world. You can make all these massive breakthroughs, but if nobody knows or nobody Mm -hmm. understands, then it literally as if you wasted a lifetime. Yeah. So that is why I realized that we need to connect with people. And for so long, the conservation word or just message has been doom, doom, doom and gloom. It is awful. It is terrible. There's nothing you can do. Yeah, you can probably recycle, but there's so much plastic in the ocean that why do you even bother? You know, that is like, that's the feeling that so much of these messages give. It's all, everything's ending now. If you don't save lions now, then they're going to be gone. Like, it's just all this like, oh my gosh. And so that is when I realized that we have to change the message that we are giving. Yeah. And so, yeah, my, I'm more of like, what, let's tell stories. Like yeah. let, let's, let's connect people. And what are we people. fighting for? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What, what's the point? What's, what's the bigger point in all of this? We mm-hmm. all want a better world. We all yeah. want to make sure the next generation has a good life and how we might get there might be a little different, but there's always something that we can connect with. Yeah. And so that, that's how I view it. Like, let's tell stories. And if somebody connects, it's so like you, you were on my podcast and we went really deep through your story and we hit on some tough things. Yeah. But if somebody connects with you on a deeper level, then they're probably going to be more, you know, inclined to support you and follow you Yeah, exactly. because of that. They're like, holy crap. Kayla is this amazing person. Cause I mean, I I'm the exact same way online. I have this facade yeah. of like, this is me, my 100% perfect life, which it is not, nope. it is not at all. And so to go through the hard stuff, to go through the nitty gritty, to connect on a deeper level with people I've, I've just found really resonates and yeah. it more people want to become involved when they're like, Oh my gosh, it's not that hard. I can make these small changes. Someone can meet me where I am. I can learn. And yeah. Well, and it sounds like, I mean, one of the things that we both have talked about already separately in our stories is how impactful, you know, these educational TV shows were for us when we were kids going to zoos and falling in love with these animals. And even if, no, we don't want kids to come away with the take home of get a pet sugar glider, get a pet cheetah, get a pet spring hair. But falling in love with a spring hair may only happen if you go to the, I'm picking on the spring hairs cause they're kind of weird. <laughs> like, I feel like you could go your whole life without going to a zoo and still kind of know that tigers are incredible. Right. Um, but especially, you know, zoos and conservation media can be really good for some of these like less charismatic megafauna oh, yeah. or maybe the charismatic microfauna. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I know I follow someone on TikTok who, um, has really cute voiceovers for a jumping spider. Oh my and God, like, she's really... got like a gajillion and seven followers. I have no idea how many, um, <laughs> just like a ton. And like, there's all these people who are like kind of falling in love with jumping spiders and like learning about jumping spiders through this like media outreach and like making jumping spiders into a charismatic microfauna. Like how cool is that? Um, so yeah. And I think, and, and that kind of pivots over to our next question, which is that both, you and I have work that I think sometimes can be vilified. So for me, Mm -hmm. what people sometimes freak out about is that I'm forcing my dogs to work. I'm putting my dog's lives on the line for my benefit or my ego or 
I'm asking your paycheck or whatever, yeah. or I'm forcing my dogs to work in these diff- difficult conditions. And like, I think anyone who's seen video or follows this podcast probably doesn't believe that and knows that my dogs really enjoy the work and that I really take their welfare seriously. But that's a pushback I get. And on your end of things, people may, you know, whether it's zoos, people not really understanding the conservation output of zoos. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and we can talk about AZA versus non-AZA zoos. Um, but also for conservation tourism and kind of being like, well, that's just a bunch of rich people going around and taking pictures of lions. How does that actually help? So w- what are some of the things that you think about for like helping people contextualize more the work that we do? Um, and again, I think it would be useful to talk about like this AZA versus non-AZA question for zoos in particular. Yeah. Yeah. we can start there. Yeah. And one thing that the reason, I mean, the AZA is just such an, it's the association of zoos and aquariums mm-hmm. and only 10% of the, like, I don't know, 2,100. It's a pretty staggering stat of the like animal organizations with the USDA, um, are actually AZA certified. Wow. So it is a very elite group and to wow. be AZA accredited you are literally like the Roy's Royce. You yeah. are the Mercedes Benz. Like you are doing everything right. A certain percent of their proceeds have to go to conservation wow. um, uh-huh. on the ground, on the research. And then also they have this species survival plan. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of zoos are, they are the reason why a lot of animals, uh, like different species are still here Totally, is because they have been doing captive breeding and a lot of them have even been re-released. I recently had this amazing episode with this, a gentleman named Michael McFadden, and he's a reintroduction biologist at the Taronga Zoo in Australia, Sydney, Australia. Uh-huh. And there are so many species that they have saved. He was the frog guy, right? Yes. Yeah. He was the frog guy um, uh-huh. that they have saved. That they, yeah. they literally were going literally. to go extinct yeah. if it was not for their zoo. And they, you know, just through breeding programs and everything, and then they were able to re-release them. And now that wildlife is back in the wild. Yeah. So I think some people don't realize that. And also they don't don't understand that this is like the most spoiled animals of all time. Dude, seriously. Oh my gosh. The enrichment these animals get. Like they have a nutritionist. There's literally a nutrition department at zoos that creates all the diets for all of the wildlife. So I worked at the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo, which is in Colorado mm -hmm. Springs, um, for a summer. It took me like two weeks to learn how to make hippo breakfast <laughs> because it was so freaking complicated. <laughs> yeah. And like, I swear to God, like I, God, I was so bad. Um, I was like 17 or no, I guess I was like 19 or 20 at the time. And like, I was constantly accidentally feeding them like their, their dinner instead of their breakfast. And like, <laughs> turns out 20 year olds maybe shouldn't be working in zoos. <laughs> I thought I was mature. I wasn't. Um, yeah, well, and one of the other things that I know that the Shine Mountain Zoo did is at least one of their eagles, if not both of their eagles at that zoo, where, again, they were hit by cars and they were unreleasable. So, you know, on one hand, you might look at this eagle and be like, oh, my gosh, it's in captivity. It can't fly. That's so sad. But what else were we going to do with that animal? It would literally die. It would have literally died. And like, of course, it was harmed originally by humans. And I think, you know, I know I personally believe that, like, if human generation humans generated the pain suffering injury that that animal is experiencing, then we are even more obligated to protect it versus, you know, if that that Eagle had just, you know, the Eaglet fell out of the the nest during a big windstorm or something, 
you know, obviously if someone finds it, I hope that they would help it. But, you know, if they don't, eh, nature. Um, yeah. <laughs> versus, again, away. if it gets hit by a car, mm-hmm. you know, I think we as humans hopefully have a little bit more responsibility to deal with it. So, okay, so we've got our AZAs. What about, like, like conservation travel? Like, do you get pushback from people on it? Do people not oh understand it? Oh, my God. So what are some of the, like, misunderstandings and how do you kind of address them with... So a lot of it is just... And again... I, people's heart are in the right place. And that is why I can't get too mm-hmm. angry or upset because they really think that by speaking out, they are doing something. But the biggest thing we hear is like, what are you doing? Leave that wildlife alone. Why are you going there? Mm. And again, they don't understand the reason why there's so many layers. If there's there's a many 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 destinations where the wildlife would be gone and the natural ecosystem would be gone if it wasn't for tourism bringing direct revenue to protect that area yeah. and sustaining the local economy exactly and incentivizing the government to protect the area exactly. and incentivizing other stakeholders exactly yeah. exactly so so it's a full circle thing so if you just view one thing and again there are a lot of bad ecotourism, if you can call them that, companies mm-hmm. out there that give the, a bad rep. You know, mm-hmm. dolphin swimming and kissing the dolphin. You know, mm-hmm. all these all these different things. And so again, I understand where they're coming from. Yeah. Um, but a lot a lot of hateful stuff like that. It's like, what are you doing? Why are you flying? Don't you understand? There's climate change. Yeah. And also too, for someone who hasn't had one of these incredible wildlife moments you can't fathom what it's like to have been there and under and experience it until you go on a two and a half hour hunt with a pack of wild dogs and experience that you don't know what it's like yeah and I dream about it every day and I want to go back and you know, and every single time I go there my money is being put into the local community on my guides all the staff at the lodge, all the camps, the bush flight person, the and the little four person plane that uh-huh. took me there. I mean, it's so many different layers. And so that's 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 the biggest one. It's like yeah. how dare you? Yeah. How dare you go to these wild places? Yeah. Why don't you leave it alone? That tiger doesn't want to see you. No, it doesn't. But it's so habituated to people, it doesn't give a crap. There's yeah. over a billion people in India. Do you think that without tourism, <laughs> yeah. that tigers would still be there? Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think especially, you know, having some compassion for, like, so myself, um, I cried uh, like three days ago because I saw a pika and it was my first pika I had seen really? in like three months. Oh, no, it was my okay. first pika I'd seen in like three okay, months. Okay, I was going to say, shut up. You've not seen a pika, but yes, no. they're super cute. And I screamed <laughs> and I tore up my hair and I beat my chest and I cried because I love pika. But for a lot of people, pika aren't that exciting. And if what makes their connection to nature and what makes their connection to wild place has to be a tiger, then you know what I say? Fuck yeah. Let's yeah. show them a tiger. You know, for me, again, like I cried, uh, our, our friend Charles, who mm-hmm. introduced us, um, he took me out and I saw my first ever um, short-eared owl with him. Oh my God. And they just, I mean, they they have this beautiful ghost-like swooping flight. It was o- during twilight over a wetland in Montana. But you know what? For a lot of people, that doesn't do it. They just look at it and say, that's a bird. And, you know, I disagree. But again, like if people need to travel to Africa and see a leopard in order to care, 
then I want them to do that. And I am glad that there is someone like you who knows you've got the expertise, you care, you care so much about every single little detail to make sure that these people are shepherded through to support that love, to support that interest, to help guide those dollars and to help that person, you know, maybe next time they will fall in love a little bit more with nature. And maybe next time they do care a little bit more about just seeing like a weird frog in their neighborhood. You know, but if we have to start somewhere with people falling in love with big cats, there's nothing wrong with that. And um, from from this is from experience. So when I was at Natural Habitat Adventures, they are the official travel partner of the World Wildlife Fund. Oh, cool. And I honestly can't. I don't even know what the number is now because it's been a couple years since I worked there. But the number of dollars that travelers have donated to WWF since getting back is in the millions yeah. of dollars. Oh, I bet. Because they were so moved by their experience abroad. And this goes, I mean, this goes true for pretty much all of my trips. Yep. And I've been, I've been a lot of places now. And every single time I go somewhere, I'm so impacted by the local community, by the wildlife, by my experiences that I'm forever changed. Of course. And yeah. you can't not be. Mm -hmm. I mean, no one can go on any of these trips that I've been on or the ones that I help organize. You can't go on them and not mm -hmm. be changed. Yeah. And you are forever changed and you will forever love whatever it is mm -hmm. that you saw, the people that you met. I mean, in anything, it's, it's always funny. Um, when I go on these trips, I, I always go for the wildlife, but it's the people I fall in love with Of course, every single time. Well, and I think, you know, to bring it back to communications as well as travel, you know, I was thinking about, you know, with COVID right now, people may not feel safe traveling or certain parts of the world still aren't open. Um, and that's, you know, that's choice maybe because of financial situations, you can't travel, but this is again, where communication podcasts, social media, video storytelling can help people you know, maybe fall in love even if they can't go. Right, right. You know? And I just, today, um, so I try to keep relatively up on conservation news. There mm -hmm. was this article, I haven't read it yet, it was just the headline, I, I want to go back and find it, that they're using VR, virtual reality, as a way to, and did you see that article? No, no but I experienced it. So the oh, last really? conference I went to before COVID was the Wildlife Conservation Society conference in San Francisco. I brought Barley, he was a demo dog, it was great. Um, he... Uh, harass the snow leopard people to no end because they had stuff. They had little stuffed snow leopards for sale, and Barley was like hell bent on stealing all of them. <laughs> and I was like, I'm so sorry. I swear he doesn't actually want to eat the snow leopards. Um, but they had this amazing VR um, setup there at a booth, and you could go and you could put on the VR headset and you could scuba dive with snow uh, snow lions, sea lions. <laughs> I'm getting tired. Um, and yeah, they had another you could put on and go through. You know. A, a bushwalk. Um, exactly. It was incredible. Right. And, and that was back in fall 2019. So, you know, and with how fast that technology is, is moving, I can't imagine how good it is now because it's right. almost exactly two years to the day. Exactly. Um, exactly. And so I, I really want to come back and I, I want to read that article, you know, it's Wednesday. And so it was elbow deep in, in work, but I'm like, that's incredible yeah. to think of how much, I mean, to bring our circles back full, yeah. full circle, like what these shows did to us. Can you imagine what it was like if we got a VR headset on everybody and be like, literally come with me, sit to my yeah. left in a safari vehicle. And we're going to oh go to the Mara. God. 
We're going to go to the Okavango well, Delta and, and you're going to be even, with me. And I don't know if this product exists yet, but you know, if you're listening, free idea. <laughs> so when I was in undergrad um, at Colorado College, they had um, like our ellipticals, bikes, and treadmills were all hooked up to a program where you could pick a trail run up Angel's Landing in Zion and you would watch a video that someone had recorded of hiking that trail and then the treadmill would actually adjust that is so to, cool. to do it right. You could also, on the stationary bikes, you could like bike sections of the Tour de France mm. or like the it- Italian coast or whatever. And that was a little bit more travel centric, but you could do something similar Yeah, where, yeah, like let's have you hiking through the Himalaya Yes, to go see some freaking snow. Cause I mean, the, also the reality is I'm going to say snow leopards. Most of us are never going to see a snow leopard no. in the wild. I, I got some hookups now though, but yeah. again, we got to, to even do that trip, you have to dedicate at least a week to hopefully see it once. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's so, cause there are some animals where if you go to the right parts of the world, you're more, and with a good guide, you're going to see it. Right. Pretty, pretty you know, you're, you've got pretty good odds. And right. there are others. And I think the snow leopard is one of these right. where it's like, I don't care how much money you've got. I mean, I'm sure to some degree, if you've got enough money, you probably could more or less guarantee it if you've got enough time <laughs> yeah. as well. It's more time. Do you but have enough time? It's a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, oh my God, what if you can go on like a treadmill hike through the Himalaya and see a snow leopard? Oh my and God. And get to experience that, that instead of just like, you know, pounding out your treadmill workout watching like Friends reruns or oh whatever. Oh my gosh, that's such a good point. Yeah, I had a. Um, and I know there's a really interesting, I'm sorry, I interrupted no, you. No, there's no, a no. really cool podcast. That does something similar, and I will try to look it up so I can yes, drop it into please. the show notes. I can't remember what it does, what it's called, but um, actually, it might have come up on your show. Didn't didn't you interview someone who you could drive like the I seventy corridor? Yes, and they had like vote videos or, or you know audio. Yes. Stuff. So again, my my like treadmill idea is now you're you're hiking through the Himalaya and looking for snow leopards, and you also get an audio experience of someone telling you about what you're seeing. And maybe telling you about the geological features you're looking at because there's not much to see as far as wildlife or whatever. And you also, you know, with that, you have the benefit of you could stitch together clips of video and clips of audio from a bunch of different hikes to actually let someone see both Ibex and Snow Leopard in the same 40 minute workout, which is never this going to like happen. an epic project. I know. I'm why like... do we, why are we so freaking busy? I want to do this. It's like, oh. I know someone who has the snow leopard video. I mean, he was on my podcast. Yeah. Um, Renz and Llama, but, um, anyway, I mean, and I think this is going, the, like all the pieces are there. I wouldn't be surprised if we see this in our lifetime. We probably, I hope we do. There um, might be someone working on it right now. There probably is. I mean, I again, so. if we've already got the, like, We've already got all these pieces where you can mm-hmm. do a drive down I-70 hearing about the history and the culture and the nature. Mm-hmm. And you can hear about why these wildlife corridors matter. So important. Or the, the overpasses or um, the wildlife bridges, whatever mm-hmm. they're called. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, yeah, you've already got these treadmills that let you, you know, hike Angel's Landing or whatever. Like, why it, can't it's we marry not a together? big jump. Anyway, you know, we start the episode with a recommendation or a suggestion. And then we're going to end it with call to action. And you had a great call to action this week. Um, which was to support a local small business that donates or shares some of their profits with the cause that you care about. And you actually have a specific example here in Denver that anyone who's visiting Denver should go check out. And also just a good example 
if people are trying to think of what this may look like in their community. So let's, can you tell us a little bit about Absolutely. this, this place? Absolutely. Oh my gosh. So it's called the Lecker coffee shop and it's mm-hmm. in Rhino, which is the river North art district. And it's my favorite part of Denver. Mm-hmm. And they very are very hip, very hip. I'm the, Oh my gosh. I freaking love this part. If you love beer, <laughs> if you love craft, anything, you need to go to Rhino and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Most of the buildings have insanely massive murals on them. Mm-hmm. But anyways, so um, many cool rooftop bars. Oh my God. Not believe with the views of the front range. Mm. Amazing! It's my favorite part of Denver. I freaking love it. You just go to Rhino. You don't even need to go to downtown. Just go to Rhino. Oh yeah, I mean <laughs> 16th Street Mall is so overrated. Yeah, I've, never, <laughs> I've never even been there. Oh, I guess technically I did. I worked once. a block away from it. For oh a year. okay, I guess I did. Go we are just time. nerding out on Denver right now. This yeah. is great content. <laughs> yes. So Lecker Coffee Shop. Okay, Lecker. Yes. And it is owned by this um, mom daughter pair, and they're super oh. sweet. I'm actually going to have them on my podcast soon then this is the reason why. So they donate 10% of their proceeds for care for the wild, which is the rhino orphanage out in South Africa. Oh my I God. recently yeah. um, watched a really amazing film about them. Um, but, um, it's called last horn of Africa. I last was, horn of Africa. I okay. think is what it was called. We'll try to find uh, it or one last one back. Something like that. We'll find um, it and link to it in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very good. If anyone has a chance, I think right now it's doing the, um, sh- film circuit. Okay. So if anybody, I highly recommend seeing that film or following them. But that's what they do is so they, it's this mom daughter couple, um, in Rhino and they have this, just had this beautiful dream of opening this coffee shop and they're so fun. One of my amazing conservation friends, Dave Johnson, he, um, runs the Katie Addison conservation fund and I've worked really closely with him and he's also been on the podcast, um, uh, he's the one that connected me with them mm-hmm. and he does a whole bunch of events there and they have a whole bunch of just things for the community. And again, 10%, if not more, I think it's 10% of their proceeds goes directly to conservation yeah. and they, for caring for rhinos. Mm-hmm. And even like every quarter, the quarter they'll post on their social media, how much they donated that quarter, yeah. um, because of everybody that they served in the community. Yeah. So yeah. And there's a bunch of amazing organizations mm-hmm. like this. So, you know, if you're not in, in Denver, like I know journey dog training, which is my other project, that's my for-profit business. Like I donate a dollar of every sale. It's a rotating charity. So if you just go to the website, you can see whichever charity is being supported that month. Um, this podcast is going to come out in November and I have no idea who we're going to be supporting in November. Cause I usually kind of base it off of whatever is in the news and like really needs help at that moment. Mm. So like, in fall 2021, I was donating a lot to like Afghanistan and Haiti. Um, you know, because six months before that, we didn't know that Haiti was going to be going through such a big crisis. So I like that I'm able to change it around. And then I know you can check out 1% for the planet, Mm. which it's a website. And those are, um, all organizations that have pledged to donate 1% of their profits. Um, I always get profits and revenues mixed up, but I'm pretty sure it's profits, um, to these different conservation organizations. I also know there's an Atlas, um, watch and jewelry company donates a bunch of their money. Um, they're really beautiful, like Amber amulets and those sorts Mm, of things, just like super classy jewelry. Um, so, you know, you'll be able to find something like that. I know in Missoula on the hip strip, which is kind of downtown Missoula, there's a bunch of businesses that donate towards various projects, you know, and it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be conservation. No, several of them supported like soup kitchens or, Mm, you know, other like local community things. And if you, if you're having a hard time finding something in your local area, you could probably reach out to your local chamber of commerce and see if they know of anyone. Um, 
yeah, I'm sure you'll be able to find something. Again, a lot of these really small businesses already have some sort of bend in that direction. So that's our, our call to action um, for the week. Um, Brooke, thank you so much for being here. Can you tell the lovely people of the internet where to find you online? And again, of course, linked in the show notes. Don't worry about it if you can't <laughs> find it. Don't crash your car trying to write down any of these notes. <laughs> so Brooke. Luckily, it's super easy because yeah. the podcast is very unique. It is rewildology mm-hmm. and it is that across everything. Perfect. It is rewildology.com, Instagram, rewildology, Twitter, Facebook, rewildology, rewildology. Um, my personal Instagram, which is just pretty much just travel stuff and any behind the scene things. Um, it's just Brooke Rewild. <laughs> so creative. You know, on brand. Yeah. So so any of those, I'm happy to talk to anybody. So if yeah. you have any ideas about anything, just send me a DM. Let's mm-hmm. chat. I'm I'm very open. I, I would love to hear your thoughts about anything. And then of course, Kayla, oh my gosh, thank you for having yeah. me on the show. It's always so much fun when we get together. I know, I know. We have <laughs> we have too much fun. Um, so to everyone at home or your car or vacation or wherever you are. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I hope that you learned a lot and you're feeling inspired to get outside, hang out with your dogs, go to a wild place and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. Um, you can find show notes, donate to canine conservationists, join our Patreon, all that good stuff. Check out our merch. I just updated our merch. Like that was what I was doing all day yesterday. And we have a bunch of great new t-shirt and sticker designs that I'm really excited about. All of that you can find at canineconservationists.org. Until next time. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>